0: Visit OpenBibleNJ.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service.
1: Thank you, Rich. We are going to start off with a little bit of a social experiment here this morning. I'm going to mention two words, and I want you to think of the first thing that comes to your mind when I say those two words. Good news. Gospel all right. Now see, I, I said it's a social experience because we've got a, a few different types of people in the room right now. We've got the ones who thought of maybe some good news they had recently. We've got the ones who thought good news, alright, what's the bad news? <laughs> and then we've got the few spiritual ones here who are trying to show me up and they said gospel right away, right? <laughs> now when I heard, when I was thinking about good news, the first thing that came to my mind Uh, Like Brother Rich said, I'm getting married in in just a a couple months here, and so I'm going through the process right now of uh, all the fun things of trying to find a place to live, and I do say fun in quotation marks purposefully, and uh, about a week and a half ago, I was talking to um a uh, mortgage lender trying to get pre-approved and all, all that crazy stuff, and so he gives this figure They says, oh yeah, I think you could get this, but I need to run some numbers. All right, yeah, that's fine. So he goes, he runs his numbers, Where well. he comes back a few minutes later, and he says, first thing out of his mouth, good news. You got pre-approved for, and then he told me the amount. And It, you know, for, it wasn't quite as high as I wanted, but I got met for someone doing this for the first time, I was pretty happy with it. I can't complain. It was good news. But then, as some of you already attested to, there's also another way you can use the word "good news," and that's with "gospel." How many of you have heard "gospel" and "good news" put together in the same? Yeah, I think most of us here, and there's good reason for that. They actually mean the exact same thing. Gospel comes from the New Testament word from the time of Jesus, "euangelion." Can you say that with me? "Euangelion." "Euangelion." Yeah, it means good news. Think of like a, a eulogy is a good word. You, the EU, means good, and then legia, word, good word. So evangelion good news or announcement. And so they mean the exact same thing. That's why we kind of get it in our head. And I am, I am thrilled when I see Bible words get into culture that way, where, where they're just so popular. But the danger with that is that sometimes the word can become so familiar that we lose its meaning to us. And the word itself doesn't lose its meaning. You know, it's, it's still as powerful as it ever was, but we become so familiar that we just, we don't recognize the beauty of it anymore. Like maybe if you're, you know, there's a, a, a roadway that you travel along, The first time you did it, you're like, oh, you're noticing all the buildings and this is cool. And then, and then you do it for 20 times or 20 days or 20 years and you're like, you just totally forget about everything around it. You get so used to it. And we boiled down the gospel in our churches essentially to saying Jesus died for you and Jesus loves you. And... That's true. That is the gospel in a nutshell. You know, we, we take it down to verses like John 3.16 and, and uh, things like that. But the gospel is also bigger than that. It is that, but it actually encompasses the entirety of Scripture. And so with the time that we have today, my goal is to help you rethink the gospel God's way. I want you to feel the power of the gospel like you never have before. I want you to understand the implications of the gospel like you never have before. And I want you to leave here living the gospel out like you never have before. Ultimately, my goal today is to lead you into a life defined by the power of the gospel. Somebody say amen to that. You ready to learn about how the gospel can change your life today? Then we have to ask two questions that are going to drive our study into God's word this morning. Number one, what is the good news? And number two... What does the good news compel me to do? What is the good news, and what does the good news compel me to do? Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our study in that first one, and then at the end, we'll wrap it up again to what it compels us to do. So what is the good news? Well, to answer this question, we actually have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And some of you are in here going, well, aren't don't you mean like John three sixteen or something? Is that where we're supposed to go? Well, yes, but actually, no. You see, the gospel is centered in the New Testament truth of Jesus. It, it, absolutely. But it's rooted in Old Testament concepts that start earlier in Scripture. See, we already learned the New Testament word for gospel. It was euangelion. The Old Testament word is biser Can you say that with me? It's there on your outline. It's biser Good. say you guys are doing great with this today. You've already learned two new words. Now, that word Becerra also means good news, but in a royal sense. Uh, In fact, there's a really awesome video explaining this um, that we had in a sermon back from uh, February that Pastor Riddell gave. So uh, if you need a refresher on that, you wanna look into it a little bit more, after the service, go back into YouTube or Facebook and find the sermon from February 7th of this year, 2021. And it was titled, Give Me Freedom, Give Me Life. Pastor Riddell preached that. And if you go to the 28 minute mark, it starts a video in the video, it's like Inception with videos, a video in a video, that talks about the gospel being royal news. So that explains even better if you want to go a little deeper into it. Because you see, today, we use good news for just about everything, right? I, mean, I talked about good news uh, with trying to find a place to live, and I mean, that was a big thing. That, that is a pretty big life event. But we use it for small stuff too, right? If our sports team wins, we can say that's good news, especially if you're a Flyers fan right now. That would be good news. You know, and we'd use it maybe if you go to the mall and you find the pair of shoes that you want to say, good news, I found what I was looking for. But in the Bible sense, it is so much bigger than that. It's actually on a national or even an empire-wide scale. A great example of this is 2 Samuel 18.31. Um This is in David's life at the end of his life. So he's already fought Goliath. He's already faced off against Saul. He's already uh, been king. He's already had the situation with Bathsheba. This is at the end of his life, and he is facing a lot of insurrection attempts right now. A lot of people are trying to take his throne, and they're from his own family. Family and friends are trying to take his kingdom away from him, and he is too old to fight. So he's sitting there in Jerusalem waiting to hear the news of this battle, waiting to realize, am I still king? Or is my son going to take this throne from me and possibly my head from me, too? This was a big deal for him. In Second Samuel eighteen thirty one says, Behold, Cushy came, and Cushy said, Tidings, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. That word tidings is a weird word, isn't it? We, we, I don't think I have ever heard anyone in my life use the word tidings. Outside of the month of December, that is. Whenever we sing, God rest You, Mary gentlemen, right? Tidings of comfort and joy. That is the only time I ever hear someone use the word tidings. But in the Bible, it's that word, beser. It means royal news. In this case, it meant that there was good news that David was still on the throne. You won the battle. The same word even appears in 1 Kings 142 uh, during a peaceful transition of power between David and Solomon. And while he yet spake, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. Now, this is not Jonathan, uh, David's best friend. This is a different Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came, and Adoniah said unto him, Come in, for thou art a valiant man, and bringest good tidings. It's that word again. This this is the idea that Jonathan brought beser. He brought good news that the people had a new wise king ruling over them. That is the idea of, to them, gospel, good news. Gospel was not originally a religious word. Now, those of you who said it in that sense, you're right. That's what it's become now, but originally it was a political word. It was about who was on the throne. And really, this idea of good news goes all the way back to page one of the Bible. And in order to understand that, we have to understand why the news is good in the first place. Because when it comes to the political sense, the good news is only good if it's good for you, right? It was good for David, but it wasn't good for David's son. It was good for Solomon, it wasn't good for the people who wanted the throne instead of Solomon. And sometimes I think we almost treat the gospel in a religious sense that way too. Like, oh, it's good for me, maybe it'll be good for them too, but that person doesn't really care about it. And if, no, the gospel in a religious sense is for everyone. It's not like the politics or, or when you say, oh, it's good news that my sports team won because that's bad news if you're the other team's fan. No, this is for everybody alive. It is good news. Why? Well, you see, the Bible is a very unique book, right? It is the only book ever to have been written by God through men and to have no errors. That, that's pretty unique. But there's also a sense in which the Bible is similar to the books of its time. Now, now they were not inspired. The people of those cultures may have believed they were. We, we believe differently. But the stories a lot of times are similar. If you were to look at the myths of ancient cultures, you would start saying, wait a second, I I recognize that story. It's not how I remember it, but I recognize that. They had creation myths in other cultures, usually of gods fighting each other and then accidentally creating the world and creating humans, and it was weird stuff. They even have flood myths in ancient cultures. In fact, this is no joke, too. Some cultures even had stories of a god placing a tree in a garden to test humanity. Pretty much any story from the first nine chapters of Genesis you're going to find in other ancient cultures. They were really common. People knew these stories, which in a way attest to the truth of the Bible, if it was that common. But if you read these, and maybe, maybe some of you had to read like um, uh, Greek uh, stories like the Iliad or Odyssey when you were in high school or something. If you've ever gone into any of those, you realize two things are pretty common. Mankind is messed up and the gods are messed up, even more so. If you read those, you're just like, this is, this is weird. Who wants to serve this kind of God? They're strange. And then you, have to, you say, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? I don't like history. I don't like literature or whatever. Okay, you have to understand the culture that the Israelites were in because these were the nations around them. This is what the people around them believed. And then along comes this little pipsqueak nation of a couple million people, and they have a creation story too. But it's not of a bunch of gods fighting and accidentally creating man. It's of one God speaking the world into existence His name is Yahweh, and he creates man not to be slaves to serve under him, but to be partners ruling alongside him. That's really different. And then as you keep reading, you see uh, that he created this garden that he put them in. And it was overflowing with this potential to to create the entire world into a utopia. We know that didn't happen, though. Because then the Bible mentions a tree, God had placed a tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told the first man, the first woman, you are not to eat of that, right? Now, if you were reading through the first two chapters of Genesis, you should be noticing one word show up over and over and over again. That's the word good, or it's the Hebrew word tov. Can you say that with me? Tov. It's like stove but without the S. So if that helps you remember, tov. It means good. And you see that over and over. In Genesis 1, constantly, and God saw that it was Good or Tove, yeah. And God saw that it was good, Tove, and it happened. God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then you get to day six, and He saw that it was very good. You're like, this is awesome. I love this. And then you get to chapter two, and God says, it is not good, not Tove, that the man should be alone. And you should be going, wait a second, um, God, you just spent the whole last chapter telling me everything's good, even very good, and now you're saying it's not good. What gives? But you see, what that is trying to teach us is that God is the one who defines good and what is not good. God is the one who defines what is tov and not tov, what is right and what is wrong. That should be in your head from those two chapters. And then we get to chapter three with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that word knowledge means discernment. See, when we use the word knowledge in English, we usually mean facts. Facts. Right? we've got a lot. Of, you say that's a knowledgeable person. That's that's someone who's a know-it-all. Right, they've got a lot of book knowledge. They they can win on Jeopardy. That's not what the word usually means in the Hebrew Bible. It's in our terms, knowledge is black and white facts. In the Hebrew Bible, it was gray discernment. It was discernment for the areas where life doesn't fit your boxes. It was more about a personal, intimate understanding of the truth. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not about Adam and Eve didn't know the difference between right and wrong. That's how I always thought of it growing up. They didn't know right and wrong, they ate of the tree, now they do. But here's why that can't be the case. Think about it with me. And anyone who's a parent or has ever been a parent should really understand this. God told them not to eat of the tree, right? What good would that have done if they didn't know the difference between right and wrong? Because it was right to obey and wrong to disobey. You don't give a command if the people you're giving it to don't know if it's right or wrong to follow. They already knew the difference between right and wrong. What the tree was was the discernment of good and evil. So in other words by eating of the tree Adam and Eve were saying we now define good and evil. What God did in chapters 1 and 2 over and over again says I'm the one who gets to define what is tove what is good and what is not. Adam and Eve by eating of that tree actually did do what the serpent said and they became like God in that they now chose to define what is good. And what is evil on their own terms. And God was not a controlling tyrant. He gave them what they wanted. But they couldn't live in the garden anymore. And so humanity would now face a curse. And the rest of the Old Testament story is how mankind longed to get back to Eden. Now, I don't necessarily mean the physical location of Eden, but the essence of Eden. The idea of a world before a curse. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that that would happen. And it would happen through a person, a very unique person. Genesis 3.15, many of you know it. It says, I will put enmity, that is conflict, between thee, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman. And between thy seed, her seed, it will bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And I realize we have a broad age range in here today, so I'm, I'm going to be general as possible in what I say here. But this verse is weird. Okay, we can't think about this as 21st century Americans. It makes sense to us. We're 2,000 years after the cross. Think in terms of Adam and Eve a few thousand years before the cross. Biologically speaking, women do not have seed. That is what the male brings to the relationship, biologically speaking. So to say that there's going to be a man born of the seed of a woman, what does that mean? That's weird. It doesn't make sense. And we know that humanity was immediately looking for this Redeemer to come. When the first child, Cain, was born in chapter 4, Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Or you could literally translate it, I have gotten a man, the Lord. I tend to think that Eve thought Cain was that Redeemer. Now, that almost makes sense in a way because... I mean, any of you ladies who have ever given birth to a child, think about that process, but you're the first woman ever to have that. You've got no, uh, no precedent for it. You've got nothing to say. This is normal. This, this is weird. This has never happened before. So this must be who God was talking about. This must be our Redeemer. Come already. How tragic then that what happened next, we learn Cain is not that Redeemer in any way. Over and over again then throughout the Old Testament, God's people were looking for that Redeemer to come. They were looking for Eden to be restored. And we're familiar with the New Testament term Christ, right? Sometimes we think of it like it's the last name of Jesus. His first name was Jesus, last name was Christ. That, no, that's not how that worked. Christ is actually a title. Uh, it's technically the Christ. It's kind of like um, the term pastor. Now, I'm not saying pastor and Christ are on the same level. I need a disciplinary meeting now on Monday, apparently. But it's the same sense. I could say George Riddell is the pastor of Open Bible, or I could say George Riddell is pastor of Open Bible. You understand what I'm saying either way. So when we say Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is Christ, same idea. Christ means anointed one. And we know the Old Testament word for it too is Messiah. They mean the same thing. Christ and Messiah both mean anointed one. Whenever there was a leader in the Old Testament, they were anointed with oil. So in this sense, and this is going to seem weird at first, but in this sense, every time Israel had a leader, whether it was a king or a, a, a judge, that person was a small-m Messiah. Not the Messiah. But the word just means anointed one. So in their minds, every time they had a judge, every time they had a king, the people were thinking, maybe this is him. This is a new anointed one. Maybe this is the Redeemer. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for all this time. So, can you understand why every time a new king came on the throne, and there was this, this besair, this royal message that somebody new came in, why people would get excited? Maybe the Redeemer's coming. Maybe the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming in my lifetime. Maybe it's, uh, it obviously didn't work out with the last king. Maybe it's this guy this time. This could be so cool. Maybe it's, maybe it's going to be Samson. Oh, no, it wasn't Samson. Uh, maybe it's going to be Samuel. No, not saying, maybe it's going to be David, no, May Solomon, may Josiah, may Joab. Can you see why that Biser, that announcement, was such gospel, it was such good news to them? Can you also see why by the time of Jesus, the people would have been fed up with fake messiahs and they didn't want to fall for another one? Can you see why it then would have been so powerfully charged when Jesus steps on the scene and Mark 1:15 says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news, the beser, the euangelion, the royal announcement that a new king has come. See, Jesus spoke a lot about kings and kingdoms, and that sounds weird to us. Ever since the last 300 years, if we live in America, we don't like kings, right? We toss their tea in the harbor. We don't like them. But for most of human history, people are used to having kings and kingdoms. We are a very unique case in human history in America. So it was common. And Jesus spoke often of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That was purposeful because he was taking a political word and making it spiritual, He was saying, there is a kingdom, a new king, an inauguration of a new king's reign on earth. He was announcing a return to Eden, if you will. And everywhere Jesus went, he brought a little bit of Eden back with him. You say, what do you mean? Think of the other tree from the garden. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. I really like that tree because this is so cool. It starts out the story of the Bible. It's at the very first few chapters of Genesis. And then it also is at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22 in revelation 22 we find the tree of life again this time in the new heavens and the new earth and it is used to heal people eden was a place of healing what did jesus do in most of his ministry he healed people yep. he brought a little bit of eden with him everywhere he went there's even this really cool uh, little addition in mark's gospel at the end of jesus temptation account it's in none of the other four gospels it says Matthew, or excuse me, Mark one thirteen. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to unto him. Now that last part of the verse is weird enough as it is. That's for a whole other message. But he was with the wild beasts. No other passage of Scripture talks about Jesus with animals. Can you think of any other story from the first three chapters of Genesis, so before the fall, when there was a man surrounded by animals? When Adam named the animals, everywhere Jesus is going, he's bringing back a little bit of Eden with him. How you guys doing so far? Okay, you following? All right, because <laughs> I know I'm stretching your thinking here. I'm going to do just a little bit more before we get into the application of it. In ancient cultures, it was believed that the gods could come down and communicate with men. And when I say gods, I mean small g gods of the ancient cultures. And wherever that happened, it was considered to be a holy, sacred space. Usually, it was on a mountain. Because the idea was you would go up to the God, they would come down to you. The higher up you could go to them, the less they had to come down to you. That's why a lot of ancient temples um, have kind of a stair step thing. If you've ever seen like the the pyramids or the ziggurats from back then, they go up a lot. In fact, uh, we we have a story of that in the Bible. It's called the Tower of Babel. People, the humanity was so longing for being reunited with God, what they were missing from the garden, that they thought, if he won't come down to us anymore, we'll go up to him. We know how that turned out. Because God, throughout the Old Testament, almost always says, I don't want you coming up to me. I'm going to come down to you. Now there are a few exceptions. I realize Moses went up to the mountain, Elijah went up to the mountain. But most of the time in the Old Testament, God says, I don't want you coming up to me. I want you, I want to come down to you. It's almost like he's saying, Stop trying to impress me with your tower. (laughs) I made the entire universe. You're you're building blocks, or tinker toys don't really impress me. Just let me come to you. Stop trying to earn my favor. Let me come to you. The really interesting thing is that there's a good chance Eden was on a mountain too. See why you say that? Well, Genesis 2.10 says that there was a river in Eden that as it went out, it split into four heads. Now, a river doesn't usually start in a valley. It starts in high ground and moves down. So there's a good chance Ian was on this mountaintop and God is saying, I'm going to come down to you. Remember, he came down in the cool of the day and talked with Adam and Eve there. And he did this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God comes down to man. It's really cool. And then eventually, God comes down, not just to man, but in the form of a man. Jesus, who was virgin born. There's your seed of a woman. He died, is buried, and he rose again. And he brought Eden back with him. Now, in those ancient cultures, people usually built temples. Uh, and, and the idea of the temple was to say, the God comes down to us here. This is where it happens. It happened a long time ago, but this is where it happened. And you just kind of have to take it on faith that something strange happened in that place. The Jews, though, had, they had a temple eventually, but they had first what they called the tabernacle. And that's really cool because in those other cultures, you could go to the temple and you might have a flame there or something to signify the God, but you couldn't see anything about the God. You go to the tabernacle of the Israelites and Yahweh dwells there. In those other cultures, they believe the gods came down, went back up. With Yahweh, he came down and he stayed with his people. In fact, that word tabernacle, we use it as a noun. We say he, God lived in the tabernacle, but it's also a verb. You could accurately say, God tabernacled with his people. It means he came to live with them. He didn't leave them alone. He came down to them. In fact, then there's this little thing in uh, the Gospel of John 1.14 where the Bible says that Jesus dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the t- word tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled with us. So just like the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were a symbol of God come down to man, of heaven and earth reunited, now that lives in Jesus. Now he is the uniting between heaven and earth. Now he is God come down to man. Or we would say, Emmanuel, God with us. And it doesn't stop there. Here's where it gets really cool. One of Jesus' later followers, you know him by the name Paul, the Apostle Paul, he continued this thought, and then he expanded it even further. In 1 Corinthians 3 and chapter 6, he twice says that you are the temple of God. Do you understand the significance of that now? You are where heaven and earth meet. You are where God came down and said, I'm going to live there you if you are a christian are a little piece of eden restored you are a little walking talking piece of biser of evangelion, of good news you are a walking piece of gospel do you feel the weight of who you are as a christian now Amen. then let's ask our second question what does the gospel compel me to do turn to matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. you guys are going to know this passage Jesus has already lived his ministry. He has been crucified illegally by the Roman authorities under the pressure of the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders. He was buried in somebody else's tomb, and he has risen again three days later. And he has spent the last 40 days reuniting his disciples who went off and did their own thing. And now he gives this command to his followers in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. He says, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you already, right, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the grammar here because I realize about 90% of you in here probably tossed away your grammar books after high school and the other 10% are like the word Nazis. Okay, I can talk to that 10% after the service if you want more info. For the rest of everyone else, I'm going to keep this part short. In English, we have uh, two commands, two imperative verbs, two participles, ing verb. That's all participle is. It just ends in ing in that verse. But the way that the verse could be translated is having go as a participle, an I-N-G word. Literally, you could say, having gone therefore, teach all nations. Having gone therefore, and and if you've ever wondered why um, uh, teach is in there twice, it's because the first one means make disciples and the second one means instruct. So the first one is a relational thing, the second one is a, a factual thing. So you could say, having gone therefore, make disciples. Or you could even say, in the going, therefore, make disciples. The point of this is that this verse is not just for missionaries who need to go overseas. The point is that Jesus says, you're already going. You're already living. Going is just your daily life. Now, in the going, as you live your daily life, make disciples. That is his great commission to us. Having gone therefore, make disciples. In your daily life, make disciples. In the little things that you do, make disciples. It's aimed at you, it's aimed at me every day. Somehow we've adopted this idea, and it's only from medieval Christianity, it's not from the Bible, that there's this some things in life that are sacred and some things in life that are secular. And here's the problem with that. We could agree Sunday is sacred. Maybe if you're really spiritual, so is part of Wednesday, but just a couple hours. And the rest of the week is then secular. So most of my week happens in the part of life that God doesn't touch. Just being honest, if that's the way we view it. If we say there are some sacred things and some secular things, most of my life happens in areas that God doesn't touch. My faith and my work life don't overlap. My faith and my home life don't overlap. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There is no sacred-secular divide in Scripture. You see, the biblical teaching is that everything you do, listen, everything you do can be either sacred or it can be secular, depending on the spirit in which you do it. That means that going to church giving to church, being a good person, helping your neighbors, even going to a Bible college, that can all be secular if you do it in your own strength. Likewise, going to work, fixing your car, making a good meal, washing the dishes, brushing your teeth can be sacred if you acknowledge the Holy Spirit's part in it. See, that's weird. Can you prove that from Scripture? Well, yes, I can. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And everyone who went to the wilds ever says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. You can eat, you can drink, you can do everything in life to the glory of God. That's a weird way to think, isn't it? Can we just be honest? Like, that's a weird way to think. We don't think of that life in those terms. That's what the Bible teaches. Everything can be either sacred or it can be secular depending on how you do it. That is the gospel. That is what the gospel compels you to do. It compels you as the temple of God, as the meeting place between heaven and earth, as a living bit of Biser, of Evangelion, of good news, it compels you to spread to other people in your daily life that there is a new king reigning, and that he is inviting everyone to join him in his reign. Imagine living in a medieval time period or an ancient time period, just anything a few hundred years or more ago, before cell phones, before email, before social media, before newspapers, and imagine how hard it would be, how much effort would have to go into it, when there's a new king to find out that there's a new king. You can't just check your social media feed you can't read the newspaper. Imagine how difficult, especially if if we're talking like one of the old empires, a lot of land. Imagine how much effort went into telling people there's a new king on the throne because a new king means a new way of life. So that's important people know. I mean, just imagine living in 2021 and thinking that Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton was still president. Could that lead to a few problems? Yeah, our policies are a little different now. Our rules are a little different now. Our our relationship with other nations are a little different now. A new king means a new way of life. (laughs) There's a great line from an old uh, 70s movie where there's a king and one of his knights and they're going up to a castle and uh, along the way, they, they meet these two peasants and they're, they're trying to talk to the peasants, but the, the peasants have no clue that they are under this king's rule. They haven't heard that he's, he's the, the king over them and this, so they don't want to listen to him. And finally, the king gets so fed up with him that he goes, I am your king. And the one peasant looks at him and he says, well, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> he says, that's not how this works, <laughs> right? That's not how that works. There might be some people in the world who didn't vote for king jesus if you will but he is still king and the gospel the good news is that what they have been longing for they may not have even realized they were longing for it but what they have been longing for was fulfilled in jesus sometimes i think we take the gospel and we try to shove it down people's throats like you you might not like this but you need it right almost like if you're trying to give a little kid some medicine like for a cough syrup or something. They really don't want to take it. It's like, no, take it. This will help you, please. You know, or, or That's kind of what we do with the gospel sometimes. And it's no wonder that people don't want that. But the gospel is actually what they've been looking for all along. Now, I don't mean prosperity gospel. I don't mean tell someone if you accept Jesus, you're going to make a million dollars or you're going to have the car you always wanted or you're always going to be happy and never have anything wrong. No, that's, that's not the way it is. But what we long for as humans deep down, peace, love, Uh, having a world that is without a curse that is fulfilled in Jesus what people are looking for is fulfilled in Jesus and that is the gospel and what the gospel compels you and I to do is to tell people that there is a new king on the throne I think of the verse in Isaiah I believe it's chapter 52 where it says how beautiful upon the mountaintops are the feet of those who bring good tidings but gospel good news and when you read that, that verse sounds really weird, doesn't it? I mean, who says beautiful feet? That's weird. When I think of my feud, I don't, I, I don't think beautiful. I think I need to get my toenails cut or something, right? That's just that's not what I think of. Even less so when you imagine someone running across a mountaintop in sandals. The feet didn't look beautiful. That wasn't the point. The point was what they were bringing. Good news. If you were alone in the desert for a few days and you came across a glass of water, I don't think it would matter to you if there was a little bit of dirt in that water. <laughs> you wouldn't care what it looked like. You just, good news, this is what I've been looking for. Right? So th- it's, the gospel is not about, oh, you need this, so I'm going to cram it down your throat. The gospels, is, this is what you've been looking for, and it's a beautiful message that we need to get out to people. Throughout the gospels, what you see over and over again is people bringing people to Jesus. Jesus did a lot of work, but he also got 12 disciples. He didn't go and do this alone. It wasn't just the job of Jesus. It's not just the job of Pastor Riddell or or Brother Richard or Brother Tyler. It is the job of the church. And when I say church, we are the church. Amen. This week, we have a lot we're celebrating, don't we? We celebrate the death. We commemorate the death of Jesus on Friday. We consider it on Saturday and we're going to praise him for his resurrection on Sunday. That's a lot to celebrate. It is the center of our mission as a church. This year, you've heard a lot about the mission, right? We say the mission matters the most. Well, what is the mission? The mission's the people. The mission is living out the gospel and bringing people to Jesus. That is what our mission is. So my point of this message, my challenge of this message is to ask you, will you do that this week? You see, we've got a couple great events coming up this weekend we've got the easter egg hunt on saturday for the community we've got an awesome sunday morning service uh two of them planned for easter sunday and open bible has made it easy for us as a staff that they they've taken care of this and made it events worth coming to so will you do your part and bring people to it we've had a challenge throughout this this uh this year handing out three invites a week now i still want to encourage you to do that that's a whole other aspect of it, if you will. But what I want to say for this message specifically is could you think of just one person? One, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, a coworker, a neighbor. I don't care. Think of it. So somebody from your hockey team. I don't know if you even play hockey. Think of one person that could use this gospel, this good news this week, and make a point of seeing that they get here on Sunday. Or even on Saturday, or even better yet, Saturday and Sunday. Get creative with it. Maybe hand them an invite. Maybe, I don't know, bake some cookies and take them over to a neighbor's house and invite them. Maybe offer, hey, if you come out with us on Sunday, you can join us for our Easter dinner if you want. Make a little bit extra food. Get creative. Just find a way to bring people here because the gospel compels you to. Not because you have to, but because the good news needs to be shared. We have a truth worth sharing. Will you do that this week? Hey folks, thank you so much for watching today. I hope that it was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, and you accepted Him today into your life, and and you put your faith in Him, I would like to send you free send you this book, Done, is written by a friend of mine, What Other Religions Don't Tell You About the Bible, and then secondly, a brand new Bible, just like this one, I'd like to send to you. So please, do me a favor. First, I'd like to hear about your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill out the electronic connection card right below, click the link. When you fill that out, put your address in, and I will be happy to send this book, Done, and this brand new Bible, free of charge to you. God bless you, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you.
0: Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store.